Welcome to Bickering Peaks with Aiden and Lindsay. Listeners are listening to Bickering Peaks. That's right. This week we are here to discuss Mulholland Drive, the 2001 magnum opus of David Lynch. I said it. Really I'm, I'm going for it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think Twin Peaks: The Return would be. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Potentially, you could view it that way. But I think, uh, and a lot of critics agree that uh, 2001 was <laughs> a high point for david lynch uh with this film certainly is a great film it's one of my favorites it may be the only reason that i wanted to do this podcast this way so so we could get to here yeah we could get here we could have just skipped it all but then we wouldn't have watched um the believers the believers yeah yeah the deadly look of (laughs) love last last time that was great or the lynch commercials we probably would have watched all of those things eventually yeah eventually would have gotten there but this way we watched them and we're talking with you about them yes uh, and we're quite excited. There is a lot to talk about for Mulholland Drive. It's yes. quite, uh, it's, yeah, there's just a lot to talk about. It's I don't know. Interesting I, I can't imagine we're going to do it justice. There's been so much written yep. on it. I'm not sure that anything we have to say no, no. is going to be original in nope. any way, way, shape or form. No, nope. a lot of much smarter people than us have, uh, analyzed and dissected this film, uh, and done a very good job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this will be third Third hand and third rate, I would say, uh, analysis <laughs> of Mulholland Drive. But uh, why else are you listening to us? Yeah, if you, if you, you know what you're getting at this else. point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's that's what you get. So Mulholland Drive is a 2001 neo noir mystery that sure. was originally conceived of as a television pilot. Yes. Um, as the lore goes, it was intended as a vehicle for Audrey Horn to get to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was supposed to be a Twin Peaks spinoff, but it ended up being not picked up by the network. And so the film was or the, the TV show was turned into a film with some extra scenes added to enhance that mystery. If you have a chance to watch the original TV pilot, it is around. Um, Aiden did watch it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we did this and uh it's interesting because I, and I actually wonder how the show would have would have yeah. taken this story because the film just seems to be perfect yeah. in a lot of ways it's a perfect encapsulation of where Lynch was at at that point at that point in his career um it does a lot of really wonderful things with that n- film noir style mm-hmm. um and it's it's hard to imagine it being stretched out over 13 episodes or 20 episodes or something yeah it was network tv it would have been 22 episodes a year at least right so that i mean and in some ways though i mean did we think who killed laura palmer if you were watching it in 1990 right uh would you thought oh they can't stretch this out over 10 episodes 20 episodes and yet they did yeah uh so i mean i think it was a similar kind of approach for Lynch Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, because it's a central mystery of who is this woman who's trying to kill her. Uh, and what, why, how does she have the money in the purse? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amnesia as the, the who killed Laura Palmer uh, vehicle. And it's really interesting that Mm -hmm. way, but, um, the movie takes it in an entirely different uh, approach and I think it's stronger for it in the end. Uh, so yeah, it, it, as a film garnered a lot of, uh, accolades and awards for Lynch and company. Uh, Lynch was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director mm-hmm. and received four Golden Globe nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Um, so it really, I mean, if you think about 
this being 2001, it was only nine years earlier that Fire Walk With Me was booed at the Cannes Film Festival. So, I mean, it's, you know, and, and Lynch didn't do a whole lot in between. He did Hotel Room. He did Lost uh, Highway. Lost Highway. Straight Story. Um, the Straight Story. So there wasn't a lot going on for him. Mm-hmm. But to come back with Mulholland Drive, which, I mean, in that this film tops a lot of critics lists for the best film of this century and yeah. this century is only 18 years old at this point so it's still cited as one of the best films um yeah. and that's something that i definitely definitely agree with it's certainly my favorite lynch film yeah i agree too it's it's far. it's my favorite it is it has a lot of angles to look at it's just visually stunning mm-hmm. there's so many amazing shots the sound design is oh, beautiful so you've got david lynch and john and neff to thank for that um, yeah. peter deming as cinematographer has mm-hmm. done some beautiful work here yeah. uh yeah i mean just generally everybody working on this film from the the cast all the way down to i mean i'm sure craft services even they did a wonderful <laughs> yeah. job i'm oh just God, yes. <laughs> i'm just gonna <laughs> throw it out there um but i mean to think that it was uh like a solid half of the film is written was yeah. originally done as a as a TV pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, to think that there's almost you can't tell. I mean, really, you cannot tell uh, production quality wise. No. They did an amazing job. The fact that they he got all these, uh, you know, Naomi Watts, who wasn't well, a huge was name. First, yes, this was her first thing that she ever did in America. True. So, um, True. But she became uh, yeah a big star because of, star this. because of yeah. this film. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a kind of a big deal yeah it is it's a pretty big landmark um so let's yeah yeah, let's talk quickly about it if if we can uh so there's kind of uh two main stories uh going on uh the first one is around uh a a woman we're introduced to as betty Mm -hmm. uh she arrives in la uh to become a famous actress Mm -hmm. or a a good actress she wants to be a, a an amazing actress or a big film star either way she's she's good either way um and she comes from Ontario, what Deep, is it? River, Deep River, Ontario. Ontario. So she's a Canuck, uh, got that going for her, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she's in Hollywood. She just won a jitterbug competition. She arrives in L.A. and she uh, happens across a woman who is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Another Lynch uh, standby. Uh, the other big plot line is hers. Uh, we'll call her Rita because that's what she calls herself. Um, she is the woman who's in. Uh, she's picked up in a limo one night. Uh, she's going to be murdered and then there's a car accident gives her amnesia and she wakes up in uh, Betty's aunt's apartment and their two uh, worlds intersect and collide and there's a whole bunch of other storylines going on but it's basically the story of these two women uh, trying to discover what happened to Rita Mm -hmm. what was going on while uh, Betty continues her journey into Hollywood right Um, and that was the basic premise of the entire uh, TV pilot. Yeah. Um, and then it's a the very, it's a very, um, noir. That's the noir. Yeah, story. That's the noir. Part, so yeah. there's lots of shadowy characters. There's old Hollywood glamor. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, the mystery, the, there's the ingenue, there's yeah. gangsters, there's yeah. all kinds of things that you would absolutely expect there's to find. A cowboy at one point. <laughs> yeah. But it's all, it's all part and parcel. Like there's lots of these old Hollywood tropes that come up and and intersect and play against one another in this first say two thirds of the film the last third of the film recasts almost every single character that we've seen up until that point as somebody else Mm -hmm. so betty elms becomes diane selwyn rita becomes camilla Camilla. rhodes yeah and 
you have some some people do end up staying the same. Adam Kesher is still a director in both scenarios. Played by Justin Theroux. Played by Justin Theroux. Um, but but you see these these characters from a slightly skewed perspective, or is it that this is their actual yeah. personas <laughs> and the first two thirds of the film are so, skewed. So there is a there is a huge abrupt shift in everything uh, at yes. about the two thirds mark uh, right. where. Um, well, we'll talk about that a lot because it's it's a, a big way to interpreting the film mm-hmm. is how you interpret that shift. Uh, and yeah, it's so the last third is very kind of dark. It's it's not it's not noir. It's kind of under the bubbly surface of Hollywood. It's a little more dangerous um, as basically what happens is Diane is now putting out a hit on Camilla Rhodes, who is her lover, who is her lover, lover. ex lover. Yeah. D- left hit left uh, Diane behind for uh Adam Kirschwin. Adam Kesher. Kesher. Kirschwin. Where am I coming up with names? As usual. Uh, but yeah, leaves leaves her for the director. And uh, uh, Diane is so heartbroken that she hires a hitman and then potentially kills herself out of, you know, remorse and grief of losing her lover and then having been the one that killed her, the, the, the guilt of, of that. So that's a very, you know, there's basically, I guess there's, three stories really at the end of the day uh that all come together to film make this film uh what it is and it's it's quite a quite a piece so the main interpretation that i think most people kind of subscribe to um is that the first two-thirds of the film are some kind of subconscious dream reality that is um a product of diane's mind either in the moment that she takes her own life or after she's died on her way to heaven or something that this is her trying to reorganize the events of her life or um possibly even like the circumstances as well well and and maybe even like a fantasy wish fulfillment kind of thing Mm -hmm. about how things could have been those are all kind of they're all subtly different ways of interpreting that but that the, the the essential is that the last third of the film is the real world mm-hmm. and that the first two thirds are somehow either a, in a quote unquote dream or part of Diane's sub- subconscious or as some people have suggested, um, including a, a friend of ours who's been writing to us via email, that it is a lodge constructed reality that mm-hmm. um is intended to help Diane through some kind of Bardo level. Yeah, mid-states before, yeah. Yeah, before yeah. she reaches enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and I think that all of those kind of interpretations do kind of hold water. I yeah. think that's what I tend to agree with. I don't know if that's yeah, no, and how I, you would go, Aiden. No, for sure. I, I think there's, I think the dream as, you know, a literal dream uh, is kind of difficult but there are some very subtle kind of uh cinematic hints to kind of lead you that way uh you find out that diane selwig uh won a jitterbug competition uh before she came down to hollywood uh and uh, what does that have to do with the well it, the, at the start of the film uh it starts off with a jitterbug competition to, to you know roll as the credits roll right. then from there it immediately proceeds into a, a first person kind of point of view shot of someone falling into sheets and going to bed so this is almost like diane has won her jitterbug and then she's landed in hollywood and she's going to sleep and then she wakes up afterwards uh after the dream world has played out in her mind 
and she's waking up to the reality of of uh, having killed Camilla and all the the guilt and everything associated with that. Right. Uh, and there's even the line, uh, the cowboy appears <laughs> uh, as Diane is uh, waking up saying it's time to wake up. I right. mean, there, there's right. a lot of like dream. You could read it as a literal dream. Sure, um, you could. And, and other things that, that come up are, and I mean, everybody's experienced this when it comes to, well, I would hope anybody who remembers their dreams, when you reorganize the events of your day, you recast the people and events that happened mm-hmm. as dream people and dream events. And they take on a slightly skewed tilt from how they actually played out. But there's some kind of you, you can construct some kind of meaning from it. And usually when you wake up from a dream, or at least for me, I'm like, well, why did I dream of that? Oh, because I encountered that thing yesterday or yeah. I had this conversation with this person. And so I'm my brain is trying to make sense of it using very broad archetypal, mm-hmm. um, very broad strokes. Right. Which is what Hollywood tends to deal with, and especially in those old films. So it's it's kind of perfect to have an old Hollywood noir um, with all of these very broadly drawn characters you know the wide-eyed, bushy-tailed ingenue from Canada, and the the dark-haired, yeah, um, mysterious, mysterious vixen, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and the cowboy, and the hitman, and the gangsters. These yeah. are all characters straight out of Central Casting, and so it's not a stretch, a far stretch, to imagine that that this is some kind of quote-unquote dream. It could be a literal dream. I don't think it is, but I think that there's there's something to that because and and also taking into account the fact that hollywood is is the the la la land the city of dreams it's the place where dreams come true and the fact that hollywood does tend to deal in these kind of stock characters even the people you meet in hollywood tend to fall into these broad categories i think that is a comment on hollywood i think generally speaking that's the second kind of interpretation that seems most popular is that Mulholland Drive is a comment on Hollywood culture and and the culture of movie making in America or in the world, really, because I'm sure it's very similar no matter where you go. Um, But especially in Hollywood, with it being full of these types of people and Lynch's um, experiences in Hollywood haven't always been great. I mean, let's be real. He was Buddha can can, (laughs) and and his his uh, experiences on Twin Peaks and reflected through on the air as well. I yeah. mean, um, he left Hollywood for a long time after mm-hmm. Inland Empire, which was his next film. He didn't make anything for 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's there, there might be something to that, that this is, that this is a commentary on Hollywood being a place where quote unquote dreams are made, but also where reality yeah. is not really addressed and yeah. and it's it's not a real place <laughs> and where reality is more of a nightmare yeah. and we'll, we'll come back to that we do want to talk about that a little bit more um but uh Linz, i just want to ask you this mm. first time you watched it how did you interpret mulholland drive um i don't really remember the very first time because the very <laughs> first time just bled right into the second time because <laughs> i literally just stopped the film and restarted it again yeah. Um, but it did seem to strike me. I think that was a good way to watch it because it's, it did seem kind of circular in a way or or cyclical in a way that, um, it, it lent itself very well to watching it Mm -hmm. two times. I think I watched it three times in a row, but yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure how I interpreted it, but very soon after that, I found some of the blogs and, and Usenet. No, it wasn't Usenet, but, but (laughs) message board, message board discussions about what the film maybe meant and I mm-hmm. came across the dream theory and that kind of 
yes. hit me. What about you? Well, and that's the thing. I remember watching it, and it's amazing because until you until you explained the dream theory to me, I had no idea what was happening. Right. I was so confused by the shift in the last third um, that I was like, what is this all about? And then mm-hmm. as soon as you said, oh, the first two thirds is a dream, I was like, right. oh, that makes so much sense. But I loved the movie even not knowing. Right. And uh, I remember we had two friends over to watch Mulholland Drive one yeah, time. Yeah, we used to do this this movie club thing. We haven't done it in a long yeah. time because all of our friends have kids now and so they don't want to come over and watch the movies <laughs> that we want to watch, which is really sad, but none of them listen to the podcast either. Yeah, so, so we can fine, we yeah. can shit all over them. Yeah, it's, it's fine, fine, whatever. But anyway, we did watch Mulholland Drive and uh, Yeah, our friends who came over, they were like, I loved it. Yeah. But they had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And and I remember asking uh, our friend Leopold what how he viewed it, like what his interpretation of right. how it all worked out. And he had something entirely different. I can't remember what it was now. No, but that's that's a great thing about it is yeah. that it does lend itself to some really great interpretations when you don't dive into it. If it's just your, your, your initial, initial experience of yeah. it. And I think that's, that's a really valuable thing is mm-hmm. to sit with this film um, without really, I think I did it wrong by no. diving right onto the message boards and trying to figure out what it meant because because I, I do think that there is a lot of value to just letting it simmer and not trying to figure out what it means to just enjoy the fact like we did with Twin Peaks, not knowing how it what, mm-hmm. what's going on and how yeah. it how it's all working and yeah. how it's all fitting together is yeah. part of the journey. It's wonderful. Yeah. So. But I mean, I think you as long as you don't go in there with someone having explained yeah. the dream theory or oh, yeah. any of the other theories to you, you, you get that experience. Even the first time I remember just being captivated by what was happening right. and having no idea, but knowing that it's, it's knowing that there is something tying everything mm-hmm. together, but not being able to place your finger on it. And right. that is a very unique experience in film, especially yeah. um, where most Hollywood films hold your hand the entire way, or you get into like some obscurance, obscurantist kind of like, you know, art house, very art house, you know, really yeah. impossible almost to decipher. Uh, this is a really great balance between mm-hmm. the two of, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even if you don't have it explained to you, you can you can feel that those connections exist. Mm-hmm. And then when it is explained to you, you're like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. Well, and it adds some depth to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it allows you to start filling in the gaps and realizing, oh, this scene is related to that thing. And, and the Winky scene, he was at the cash. He was at the cash register. But the next time it was Diane at the cash register, whatever it was. I don't remember. actually. But it's not. I mean, I don't think that's strictly necessary. And this is where no. explaining it is not necessarily the the end result. I think. Lynch would disagree that oh, you need an explanation. Yeah. Which is why it's really interesting that when the film was, I can't remember, I think it was when it was first released on DVD, it came packaged with 10 clues. Yes. The there clues were to inter- 10 or the keys, clues yeah. to unlocking, 10 clues to unlock the thriller or unlocking the thriller. Yeah. Um, and there, I mean, I wrote about, I wrote about this for 25 years later and admitted in the article that this doesn't seem like something Lynch would I, I firmly believe he, this was not his idea. It was probably yeah. the production company who was like, yeah, let's capitalize on, yeah. you know, this film being the buzz around this film. Yeah. Um, so Lynch writes 10 clues and purposely obscuring. Yeah. It perhaps, or, yeah. or purposely making them um, useless, very obvious <laughs> yeah. because some yeah. of them are really obvious. Like, yeah. so number one was pay particular attention to the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. So if you look at that, I think we talked about them already, the jitterbug contest and the fact that there's um, this collapse into the pillow, um, which looks like it's at the Sierra Bonita apartments, which is where Diane Selwyn lives. Um, Number two was notice the appearance of the red lampshade. 
Yeah. Uh, so if you watch for all the, the various lampshades, there's um, lampshades in Diane's apartment. There's lampshades in the um, the kind of Baroque phone call situation that yeah. happens, uh, you know, halfway through the first half of the film. Um, so you can watch for that and kind of figure that out. But it, it gives you something to look for, right? Yeah. It gives you something to kind of pin down. Number three is, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? It's called The Sylvia North Story. I don't know what that has to do, do with, with anything. anything. but it's, I never heard that. But it's, it's that. just, yeah, no, they, they mention it during the audition sequence, I think. I don't know if it's mentioned in the, oh, yeah. the meeting with the Castigliani brothers. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, it's... Does yeah. it have anything to do with the mystery? Yeah, who knows? Probably not. But it's fun to kind of play this game, I yeah. guess. An accident, number four. An accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. It's wow. on Mulholland oh, Drive. Wow. Number five, who gives a key and why? This one is a little bit more interesting because the the key that Diane, when Diane orders the hit on Camilla, uh, the hitman says that he will leave a blue key for her to let her know that it's been done. In the first two thirds, at the end of that part, the dream, quote unquote, dream sequence, Camilla and Diane find a blue key and they find a blue key before that with the money that Camilla has, but they find what the key goes into. It's this little blue box before they go to or while they're at Club Silencio. Mm-hmm. Or is it after Club Silencio? It's at Club Silencio, they find it. But yeah. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, again, possibly elements of that dream logic coming into play that there's a blue key that unlocks a secret and in the dream world the blue key unlocks the reality of diane's situation number six notice the robe the ashtray and the coffee cup um it it is interesting to just look at the way that colors play into that the, mm-hmm. the robes that diane and or sorry that betty and rita wear yeah. versus the ones that that Diane wears in the last third of the film and um, yeah it, it, the ashtray being the the piano shaped ashtray that's on Diane's table the coffee cup that's full and then it's empty so there's the passage of time maybe yeah. like this is a flashback yeah. um, number seven what is felt realized and gathered at the club Silencio I think we've there's some there's some kind of acceptance of reality or acceptance of what's actually going on yeah or, or an impetus to wake up perhaps yeah did talent alone help camilla is number eight yeah where it's it's suggested in the first two-thirds that camilla who is not rita rita is cast as this amnesiac right the camilla it's so confusing because everybody <laughs> has two names well yeah the there's a camilla in the first two-thirds who gets her job by through the gangsters yeah. pressuring the director into so this it. is I mean is this how how that's how Diane, Diane views expecting? it yeah Diane yeah well and in, in the last third it's presented that uh, uh, Adam no Rita's Camilla Camilla uh, slept her way into the director's right. good graces you know right Where, and, which is this is a role that that Diane wanted. wanted yeah but in the dream Diane's counterpart Betty was a great actress who could have had this role, but it was stolen from her because of the machinations behind everything. So, um, yeah. So there's all those connections between the, the dream and the real world potentially. Yeah. Number nine, note the occurrences surrounding the man behind winkies. This is uh, another point of contention, which we'll probably go into a bit deeper, uh, in our discussion, because that's one scene that I can't for the life of me figure out 
maybe you have some suggestions for what it means, Aiden. But, sure. Um, and then number <laughs> 10, where's Aunt Ruth? I mean, it's said in the film that she's she's gone off to Canada to film a film, yeah. which some people have taken to suggest that it's um, a sign of the collapse of the Hollywood film industry and Hollywood North coming mm. up in, in prominence with Toronto and Vancouver kind of taking over um, because of the strength of the American dollar compared to the Canadian dollar or whatever. Um, I don't know where Lynch stands on that, but uh, yeah. but certainly other directors in Hollywood won't film in Canada because it's uh, taking jobs away from Americans in the American film industry. But, mm. I mean, is she actually there? Is it actually Aunt Ruth? Does Aunt Ruth exist? Does Aunt Ruth There's even exist? There's very little yeah. evidence except for she does walk into the... Uh, room after but is that even Ruth yeah. right it's the same actress but yeah. maybe it's not Ruth because yeah I would assume not because yeah. everybody else has changed so. yeah so I mean uh, those are the 10 clues and they're not like hugely helpful in understanding but I think that they, yeah, what they do is they point you in certain directions and maybe get you to think about the things you're seeing in multiple ways on multiple levels which is yeah and start drawing the connections between the, the different worlds at mm-hmm. least for sure so, yeah, we briefly talked about how this is a neo-noir um, that draws on a lot of previous Hollywood films and uh, themes throughout mm-hmm. the history of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I think that most people tend to, if they're going to make a comparison between Mulholland Drive and something else, they're going to make it to Vertigo, mm-hmm. um, which is you know one of Alfred Hitchcock's most... Prominent films, popular, yeah, popular films. and memorable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also featuring actresses and you know California and yeah, all sorts of double yeah, doubles so, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay, so briefly for those of you who have never seen Vertigo, <laughs> you have um, it's it's a classic noir from 1958. Um, Jimmy Stewart plays a character named Scotty who is Scotty Ferguson. Let's mm-hmm. yeah, just put it in there. Um, who is tasked with trying to figure out what is going on with Madeline Elster, who is his friend's wife from college. And she's apparently drawn into this possession um, storyline, I guess, where... uh, Like a supernatural possession. Yeah, Yeah. where her great-grandmother, has her dead, obviously, who she committed suicide, and she has um, taken over Madeline's body. And... Scotty is drawn into this life and into this world and eventually falls in love with her. Yes. Very just deeply in, and passionately. Yeah. Just in time for her to pretend, apparently commit suicide yes. and die. So all of this is, um, is happening with this backdrop of, of Scotty having been discharged from the police force for, um, suffering from vertigo from acrophobia that causes vertigo. So, uh, part of what happens is she falls from this bell tower and he can't save her because of his vertigo. So um, he ends up going kind of a little bit insane. He goes and spends a period of time, several months in an insane asylum or a, a hospital of some kind. When he is released, he meets a woman who looks exactly like Madeline, um, but she has brown hair and her name is Judy which is just fascinating to anybody who's watched Twin Peaks that <laughs> yeah. you've got a Maddie, you've got a Judy, and you've got, got a Ferguson. A Ferguson. Yeah. Um, and it turns out, and this is what's really interesting in comparison to uh, Lynch in Mulholland Drive, who offers no explanations, it turns out that Judy Barton is actually the woman who played Madeline Elster and that she was part of this plot by Gavin Elster to murder his wife 
get using away with to get yeah. away with it, but to have Scotty, who was plagued by vertigo, be a witness to a suicide, quote unquote, because then he'd be able to get away with murdering his wife. And unfortunately, Judy has fallen in love with Scotty, and Scotty can't see Judy for anything more than her relation in appearance yeah, to Madeline, to so he makes her over in Madeline's image. And when this story eventually comes to Scotty's attention at the end of the film, it drives him absolutely insane. And uh, Judy ends up falling from the same bell tower and dying the same way that Madeline yeah. died in the first half of the film. So you've got a story a story of madness and possession and passion and um, mistaken identities and double identities and, and murder. murder and all of this, which, I mean, comes up so clearly in Mulholland Drive as well when you've got, you know simple things like blonde and brunettes mm-hmm. and you've got this mi- murder mystery and you've got nefarious plots underneath the surface and you've got psychosis yeah coming into play and you've got dream sequences which vertigo does very differently but is still very clearly um making that i, I mean in vertigo it's it's literally scotty's I, it, dream. Yeah, dream yeah but you have in in maholland drive the club silencio scene which mm-hmm. is the one that most people point to as being the most dreamlike, the most yeah. dreamlike. Yeah. and even the where the connections come for the red room because there is yeah we'll we'll get there we'll do we the will. twin peaks connections at the end but it, yeah i mean vertigo is uh, even just structurally i mean it's it's a little bit close to half and half but yeah. it's almost two-thirds and a third of these starkly different stories mm-hmm. you know it starts off as the love story and try and protect uh madeline and then it turns into the love uh, this really twisted love yeah. of Judy, which mm-hmm. is very similar to Diane's twisted love towards Camilla in the last third of Mulholland Drive. I mean, it's it's a very uh, they both have those those shifts. Like mm-hmm. you think, oh, he's going to save her. That's what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. Um, him, you know, finding out what's causing this corruption. And then uh, the last third is him going crazy right. uh, and Judy suffering for it eventually. Right. right? Uh, and yeah, very similar to Mulholland Drive in, in that structural way as well. Yeah. Um, but it's it's I think uh, more so even than just the uh, the plot structure or I mean there's a lot of filming I mean Lynch uses Hitchcock esque uh, shots on occasion mm-hmm. uh, including in this one but I think also uh, the 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 dialogue of the film of Mulholland Drive is very similar to noir uh, it's it, in the first two thirds in the first sure. two thirds for sure when it is potentially a dream like situation like there's some bad overdubbing even like where the lips don't quite mm. match especially at the very start when uh uh betty arrives in hollywood and mm-hmm. everything's very dreamlike i mean there's there's clear instances where they just overdubbed and they didn't really even try that hard to get it to get it perfectly and that was not on that was not an accident that was either potentially because uh they were turning it into a movie and they had to redub it right but they could have nailed it and they chose not to uh, and it adds this surreal quality of it, but it also feels very noirish where they might have extra overdubs because production was really expensive back then. Whatever. Right. right. There's uh, there's that the, the dialogue is very kind of stilted at point at points, um, which we can also get into uh, Lynch's meta analysis critique of filmmaking, which mm-hmm. is in this film that you mm-hmm. already mentioned. Um, but, you know, it, there's questions of like is this supposed to be bad acting? Is this supposed to be overacting? Is that indicative of uh, whether or not it's a dream? Uh, is that indicative of um, just the feel that Lynch is going for in these scenes where there's gangsters, you know, uh, 
giving kind of macabre lines and Betty being so over the moon happy that I'm in Hollywood. I'm going to be a great actress. You know, like it, it it's playing on all those uh, 30s, 50s, you know, uh, kind of feels in the film. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. It's no, just, I'm just waiting for you to... To shut up so no, you can no, get no, in? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm listening to what you're saying. <laughs> okay. That's what I'm... Well, do, do you agree? Like, there's... I mean, there's, there's that element as well. Yes. Yeah? Okay. Is it not worth mentioning? Should I have shut up 20 minutes ago? No, I just... Um, Yes. I don't, I really don't have anything to add. I don't okay. you pretty much said it all. Yeah, no. And it, it's just, I, I think it does tie in more to the Hollywood uh, critique that you've already touched on. You know, the fact that this is a movie potentially about dreams mm-hmm. set in Hollywood uh, that feels very old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It feels like she is chasing uh, Betty, mm-hmm. at least, and probably Diane to some extent, was chasing the 50s noir Hollywood. And what she arrived and what she found in the last third of the film is the gritty, disgusting Hollywood that, you know, uh, doesn't 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 operate that way. It's who's sleeping with the director and, you know, who it's not how great you did in the audition, which I think the audition scene is one of the most important in the the film. Uh, But it's that is not how Hollywood operates. It doesn't matter how good of an actress you are. It's. all who the politics, know, who you, you know, do, exactly. Who you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's disturbing in a way to see it so starkly contrasted. Um, and there's a ton of contrasts <laughs> we can talk about there too, but, um, yeah, the, the representation of place, I know you really wanted to talk about this is very important because you have this Hollywood that exists potentially in Diane Selwyn slash Betty's mind. Yeah. And then you have the real Hollywood and right. we get glimpses of both in both. It feels like, um, but the dream world still has that that artifice of um, you know more stilted dialogue, more uh, yeah, more more overdubbing, more uh, kind of classic angles and and big uh, shots yeah. of landscapes and stuff like that. Whereas the last third is very in your face; it's mm-hmm. very focused. It's very postmodernly cut. Well, yeah, and you have all those subjective viewpoints, the, yeah. the camera angles and everything, which really does make you feel like this is you are seeing things from Diane's point of view yeah. or Camilla's point of view yeah. um, which isn't really present in the first two thirds in the dream part of no, the film. No, it's a very objective kind of camera angle. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is also, uh, I mean Hitchcock used a lot of that in Vertigo as well mm-hmm. to, to signal um, especially when Scotty was following Madeline around, you got a lot yeah. of his point of view as he's, you know, walking into the palace of Legion of honor yeah. and, um, or, at, you know, underneath the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of that, but I think, um, the overdubbing, I'm not convinced of that argument that it's overdubbed. I think that I, I, I don't see it that way. I think it's just a choice on the part of, of Lynch and the, people that worked on sound design with him that this is um to add to that surreality of the first of the dream world which i mean i keep coming back to hitchcock but that is something else that hitchcock liked to do and i feel like this ties into place really nicely because um when you talk about and and i should say that i've been reading um a collection of essays that our friend Doug Cunningham, who writes for 25 years later as well um, as 
many other places. places yeah. <laughs> he is a man of many talents. But he, he sent us a copy of his, uh, an essay collection that he edited, The San Francisco of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, Place, Pilgrimage, and Commemoration. And um, cannot recommend this highly enough. It's been on my desk for the last week. I've been reading it religiously um, in preparation for this episode. But uh, it's interesting that, you know, when you talk about Hitchcock and you talk about Vertigo specifically being so tied to San Francisco and you and then you look at Mulholland Drive which is so incredibly tied to Hollywood mm-hmm. and Los Angeles and you look at the things that that they do similarly like um this surrealism that you, that we were talking about uh it seems in Mulholland Drive to really only be in that first two-thirds we this were, kind sir, of surrealism we were talking about it you and I, but not to the listener. So yes. what kind of surrealism are you yes. talking about? So um, the example that was that I thought of right away was um, the fact that, well, there's two things. There's Aunt Ruth's house, which is strongly linked to the Sunset Boulevard street sign, mm-hmm. which sort of implies that it's on or near Sunset Boulevard but in reality where they film that house is nowhere near Sunset Boulevard it's in South LA same thing with Winkies the the Winkies is not an actual place it's a restaurant called Caesars I think Caesars and it's was in, at least in 2000 yeah, <laughs> no, I, think it, I think it is still around I'm not sure but yeah. um, it's again South LA it's nowhere near Sunset Boulevard mm-hmm. so you've got these two locations that are very tied to Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard being another film that Lynch uh, comes back to again and again. Um, But in reality, like there is no tie to reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. These are, these are locations that are used in the film that are based on locations in Los Angeles, but they're not the locations that Lynch is telling us they are. And I think that that's something that unless you lived in L.A., unless you are from L.A., you would not know that. You wouldn't. Yeah, yeah you just accept it because you're buying into the Hollywood. Right. You're you're expecting, oh, yeah, well, this is a land of magic and make-believe. So, of course, I don't care. I, I want to I wanna believe that this apartment building or this apartment complex exists on Sun, right. Sunset Boulevard because I know Sunset Boulevard. There was a movie about that. I remember right. that one. Right. You know, exactly. and that's and that's the only tie you need. And he's done that for the entire movie of Mulholland Drive, right? Right. Right. But here's the interesting thing, because as a culture, we have, especially with these films that and, and they talk about this in 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 Douglas's um, uh, essay collection as cinematic pilgrimages, cinephilic pilgrimages are things that we do when we when we go to Los Angeles or we go to New York or Aiden and I we went to London and we we went to all of the filming locations for A Hard Day's Night and Help which are two of the Beatles films um and we go to find these locations because of whatever. What reasons would we have to go to those locations? I don't know. Right? You tell me. Well, I, and I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've I've been thinking about this a lot because of this essay collection. But, um, but you go to these places to to feel connected to the film, to feel connected to the reality of those films and mm-hmm. and the reality that they present. And when you go to Winkies, quote unquote, I've been doing that a lot, quote unquote. Mm. When you go to Winkies. Caesars, you find that it's nowhere near Sunset Boulevard. Does that affect the way you look at the film? Does it affect the way uh, you remember the film when the next time you watch it? Because here's the other interesting thing. When Aiden and I were in uh, Los Angeles two years ago, mm-hmm. 
2016, we stayed at the top of Beechwood Canyon. We happened to rent an Airbnb underneath the Hollywood sign, not even thinking, not even realizing that we were about a five-minute walk away from the corral that the cowboy in Mulholland Drive sends Adam Kesher to. So the scene where Adam is driving up, you yeah, know, yeah, those are, drive. Those we are recognize the, all those homes. Yeah, like, those oh, are, that was that where planter. we drove. Yeah. That's where we lived for when yeah. we were in L.A. Um, so looking back on that, you know, having been there, having walked those streets, and then you watch the film again and you see places that you spent a holiday on film now in a different light, it changes the way you experience it. So, I mean, there's... I don't know. There's something to that. And I think the well, fact yeah. that Lynch doesn't want to pin these things down necessarily, although in Adam's case, he does literally say his his secretary or his assistant yeah. says there's a cowboy at the top of Beechwood Canyon or yeah. whatever the, the line crowd. is. Yeah. yeah. That's literally where, where she sends him, whereas Winkies and are on Sunset, but they're not, right? Yeah. So I, I I wondered about that, the, the link between real Hollywood and the Hollywood that were being presented. Having said all that, I still feel like this is not a film that could take place anywhere else. Yeah. Like it's it this isn't something you could transplant to New York no. or Vancouver or Bollywood. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't work that way. This yeah. is a very American Hollywood story. Yeah. And I think that's because you have a director who's so steeped in Americana and who grew up with these films that he is drawing inspiration from. Mm-hmm. And that's what's feeding into this um, hellish dreamscape, I guess, that yeah. he's created, which, yeah, I think really is sort of a commentary on on the system that in which he's working, um, which is Hollywood. There's just no way around yeah. it, right? Yeah. And and that brings us to the next point on on my list of mm. topics to discuss, which is the the meta critique kind mm-hmm. of of Hollywood mm-hmm. and um, filmmaking generally. You get you get some hints of it here. I mean, when we get to Inland Empire in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. that is nothing but, uh, and we mm-hmm. will talk about that one in depth because uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in Inland Empire in relation to filmmaking and Hollywood right. and actresses and everything. But you get a brief you get the brief snippets of it here. Um, I mean, there's some really amazing shots, like when uh, they're casting uh, in the dream sequence. They're casting for uh, the Sylvia the, North story. Yeah, the Sylvia North story. They're casting for the the lead actress, and you have two different actresses doing two different fifty songs, um, presumably for the same role. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you get this amazing shot of you know you start off on the edition as if you were actually watching it on camera Mm -hmm. then it slowly pulls away and you see more and more artifice you're seeing you know the literally the 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 sheen of hollywood is being pulled off for this drab dark kind of gray industrial warehouse which is where they film movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know they they dress them up and they put all the money into making them look a certain way but at the end of the day they're pure artifice uh created and you know everyone's lip syncing Mm -hmm. nobody's actually singing uh, everything's just playback and action and it's not uh, no I banda exactly exactly <laughs> and and yeah Club Silencio is um, well yeah we can get into that a little bit too because uh, that's something else that you mentioned about Vertigo and mm-hmm. uh, the way California is presented mm-hmm. in Lynch's films too I think in the, the California trilogy is there is the the Mexican kind of uh, history that that's kind of under the surface of California always right always has been always will be 
Um, how but, it's presented and how it's dealt with is very different. Yes, yes, right? for sure. But uh, they, you know, it's, it, I think in Mulholland Drive, it is, uh, it is the instance, uh, Club Silencio in particular, yeah. uh, is the instance of um, that real history coming back and forcing its way to the surface. Right, right. And that's what eventually leads uh, Diane to wake up. Right. And I think that's uh, also something that can only be done in Hollywood, yeah. in this land built upon basically, uh, you know, murdering and colonializing the, the yeah. people who... The Californios. Yeah, exactly. The, the ones the who initially Americans lived there and, and then the, the Mexican-Americans. Mexican Americans. Exactly, yeah. All these all these groups that were there before. Yeah. Um, and then Hollywood came in to make its dream factory. Right. And uh, it's it's a terrible kind of history that, yeah. that in some ways presents itself uh, in that scene, at least for sure. Um, we can get more into it in Inland Empire again, but, um, but yeah, that, that whole meta critique I think is, is really central to the film. Like you said, this movie couldn't have been really set anywhere else. Yeah. The characters ambitions and drives and everything are so connected to those either Hollywood archetypes right. of the characters in the dream sequence or the, the destruction of those dreams right. in, in the Diane uh, post-dream real world kind of situation uh, is just so telling and such an important part of uh, the film itself. And I think the fact that those elements connect with the individual characters, with um, the visual style of the film, you know, it's harkening back to old Hollywood and the audio I know mm-hmm. we kind of disagree <laughs> on that, but yeah, the audio of old Hollywood uh, and then, you know, shoving it back into this postmodern uh, real world of, yeah, all the scenes are out of order. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, rhyme or reason. It doesn't explain anything. Right. There is no central mystery. There's just what the fuck is going on yeah. for this last third. Yeah. And then you kind of have to piece it together yourself. You mm-hmm. as the audience have to bring that to the table. Um it is a, an amazing juxtaposition of a movie built on doubles and contrasts and blondes and brunettes and, uh, you know, funny hitmen versus deadly hitmen versus, you know, people who operate in the shadows versus who operates in the daytime. You know, the appearance versus reality of the, um, you know, the you do a great audition and then everyone's backstabbing. Even in the dream world, you know, Hollywood backstabbing is, a, is just a part of the culture. Um, but then it's turned up to 11 in the real world. And I think, you know, that, you know, place is not just the central thing. It is Hollywood and Mulholland Drive that snakes through all of Southern California or the L.A. part of it really uh, is key to understanding the whole movie um, because it is it is the biggest character, I feel, is the the place of Hollywood and everything that it embodies. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, I think you skipped over a few important scenes. We sure. should talk about them in, in depth yeah. that you kind of went really I jumped over, broad. Yeah. Sorry. You have this way of, of coming, like we're not near the end of an episode, but you wrap it up and I'm like, oh, there's more to talk <laughs> there's about. There's more to talk about, you, you just, idiot. Yeah, like Jesus. I'm sorry. We should script this. That would be better, but uh, <laughs> maybe not. Um, we haven't talked about the Kistigliani brothers scene, yeah. which is something that a lot of people have for whatever reason, whether they're right or wrong, um, interpreted as possibly some kind of nod to the situation that happened with the De Laurentiis company yeah. and Lynch's involvement with Hollywood kind of stepping in on his toes and getting in his way mm-hmm. when it came to Dune, when it came to Twin Peaks, um, whether or not that's true. I think that it it 
it's a nice story to think about if yeah. that's the case um, that that here's a director exercising his demons in a way um, and making the film he wants to make the way he wants to make it after being told back in the day that he couldn't. Yeah. Um, and the fact that this scene in itself deals with a young hotshot director who is being told he can't do things the way he wants to do them. Mm-hmm. And that it's Angelo Badalamenti and Dan Hedaya, but yeah. playing these these gangsters who are ordering Adam Kesher to make the film and cast the film the way he the way they want him to. Um it lends kind of a, a nice little circularity to it, I guess, yeah. maybe, or self-referentiality to it, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. And then the fact that Diane believes that this is some kind of circuitous, backwards, back route way to get her off of a film that she never auditioned for in yeah. the dream, and that she may have auditioned, she probably did audition for in real life, but... Um, that all of these these backroom dealings with that phone call, that that long yeah. phone call chain, like that she in the dream says this is Hollywood. Yeah. I think that yeah. says something too about the fact that maybe that is Hollywood. Yeah. Maybe there is something to that because we see in the real world um, that Camilla did get the role because she was sleeping with the director, yeah. or it's strongly implied that that's one of the reasons why she got it. Yeah. Um, so in the dream, it's kind of cast the same way. Diane doesn't take any responsibility for what yeah. maybe she isn't a great actress. Yeah. Maybe, you know, her audition wasn't as good as she thought it was yeah. because you wanted to talk about the audition scene as well being yeah. important. Um, so having two gangsters show up and commandeer a movie set and having that long chain of phone calls up to some nefarious boss man sitting in a room um you know that's that's a um a darkly surreal take on hollywood that may be based on some reality which Mm. is kind of depressing for all of us who grew up with you know aspirations of hollywood stardom it's it's not how it works that's very very rarely how it works more often than not you're an actor um, working at Winkies, waiting tables, busing <laughs> yeah. tables, or yeah. working at Trader Joe's, you yeah. know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> which is yeah. not to denigrate that at all, but it's just not the dream, yeah. right? And that's the contrast, that yeah. that this dream factory can't actually yeah. make dreams Produce, come true. Well, it just everyone, yeah. puts the illusion of making dreams come yeah. true on reality. And for anybody who's been to L.A., you know that because you see Hollywood Boulevard and you see all of these glamorous places and it's not they're they're scuzzy locations and (laughs) and it's dirty and you know it's it's not pleasant right so that's um that's something that is being brought into kind of stark reality by the film the audition scene though when betty auditions for the role that her aunt ruth helped get her set up for yeah why do you think that is the most important scene in the film? Um, well, I, I think two reasons. I think a it confirms that Diane uh, believes she is a great actress, mm-hmm. um, and it, it the way it's set up is is just as important because you see the scene played out between Rita and Betty, mm-hmm. uh, and it's done very melodramatically. It's oh, very yeah. you know it's it's in that 
almost again i'm going to refer to it as the 30s 50s vibe it's the right. 30s 50s vibe where everything's big and dramatic and you know it's Soap almost like almost. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, and you know she's like two tones away from a transatlantic accent mm, you know yeah. like that's the kind of feel that that she has in that initial scene and uh, to an audience now uh, it feels very forced and, yeah. and, you know, cliche. And even she laughs. She's like, yeah. and then I get really mad and threaten to kill you or whatever. Right. Um, but uh, so when you see the real audition go down and it is intense and just moving and like surprisingly uh, like good. good. Exactly. <laughs> it, it is it is uh, appreciable. Um, that is, I think, yeah, it's key for. Diane believing she is a great actress. I think that sets, you know, her whole uh, backstory in the last third of, Mm -hmm. you know, she deserved, she believed she deserved the part that Camilla got. So obviously there had to be nefarious things, whether she was sleeping with the director or whether, uh, you know, gangsters got involved as in the dream. There was something keeping her away from it. And this scene is proof. Yeah. This is the, this is the reality of what she's capable of. Um, But then also thematically, um, you know, there's the good and the bad um, performance. And, uh, you know, it's the same person that's capable of both. Right. Uh, Diane potentially is a, a lovely person, winds up killing her lover, you know, yeah. because she treated on her. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's uh, then for the Hollywood, it is getting into that. Yes, she is good. Everyone in the room recognized it. They all shook hands like, oh, my God, where did you find her? This person was amazing. Even the casting agent that took her away and was trying to dissuade her from taking that role did it because she knows that she could get the the better parts on Adam mm-hmm. Kesher's movie. Uh, and that's where she was taking her yeah. to, to, to film uh, or to audition, probably. Uh, so, you know, there's... Um, there's that dream Hollywood mm-hmm. and then there's the reality Hollywood mm-hmm. again. It, it really does uh, just literally uh, bring all the elements of Diane's, uh, Diane and Betty's story, uh, the Hollywood elements mm-hmm. and uh, the the duality features of the film mm-hmm. all together into one. Mm-hmm. And it's right at the center of the movie. Literally, it's almost halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a memorable scene again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's memorable partly because uh the director is such a joke i mean i think that was the other again there's a contrast between adam as the director you know a serious guy who wants to make his movie he's not he doesn't seem like an artistic visionary by any chance he still seems kind of hollywood sleaze like he's dressed in all black and he drives the porsche and everything he's very uh, obsessed with looks and everything but um then there's the other director is no real better because he's just a mumbling mess of you know feel and you gotta you know pull and Mm -hmm. and it feels like lynch is making fun of himself a little bit more because he probably falls more into that category um but you know it's 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 that scene is so great for pulling all those different elements it's also incredibly awkward when it starts off like she meets all these people and it feels very much like how can you possibly feel comfortable acting yeah. in that but that's what hollywood is like right there's 500 people on set when you're forced to do a sex scene or something like that yeah, right like right. in a lot of cases right? right so it's it really is just like a, a really good uh summary of the film as a whole if you just watch two fi- scenes from the film if you touch the bad audition and then the good audition yeah you'd have a sense of what the film's about really well and it's it's another performance that we're capturing within a performance right yeah and and that's similar to the club silencio scene where we get mm-hmm. uh, rebecca del rio performing and everybody else the mc performing as well um 
performing something that isn't actually there, which mm-hmm. is again another commentary on on Hollywood. Yeah. You know that that there really isn't anything of substance to this place. Yeah. Um, there is no band. Yeah. And so I think yeah, you know, in addition to I love the point that you made earlier about the 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 early history of California kind of coming up with the fact that this is a Spanish it's a Spanish cover of Roy Orbison's Crying mm-hmm. that Rebecca Del Rio sings and um and then obviously being sung in, in in Spanish yeah sung in Spanish and then the words said in Spanish and then yeah. silencio as well mm-hmm. so um but yeah the the idea that that is still a fake construction yeah, yeah. and so is the film set that Adam is on and so is the audition that that Betty does mm-hmm. um, it really heightens the artificiality of everything yeah. so I think it primes us for on some level subconsciously for some part we understand that some part of this film is not real yeah and that that maybe the well and the whole thing isn't real because none of it is none of it is real it's all constructed it's not on Sunset yeah. Boulevard it's yeah. you know and yeah. and so it's um it's just a very artificial place to be yeah and right? it's funny you mentioned that because part of the criterion collection uh blu-ray that we have mm-hmm. uh actually has some behind the scenes footage and watching them make mulholland drive is just it's painful because you're like no no this is a fully formed masterpiece it just happened yeah. you know it literally came out of the mind of david lynch and then you realize no there's there's you know hours of you know questions about oh is this in the shot i can't tell oh no you stepped out of the frame there for half a second so we have to everyone back to position like it there's all this work that goes into into making a movie um and yeah for some reason that was very discouraged not discouraging it was very um disappointing maybe no it was it just you know uh there was that uh, cognitive dissonance of like no 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 that's that's not possible this is not how Mulholland Drive was made I understand he's commenting on the making of other movies but Mulholland Drive was not affected in such a way right right? and it's it's uh it's it's that's actually a nice addition because it Mm -hmm. it, that 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 commentary doesn't just end with the film itself it kind of continues beyond right um and yeah and I I agree I think there's a there's a lot to uh appreciate about the art of making movies mm-hmm. uh, and the artifice of making movies yeah. in this in well this and the film. artifice of movies in general y- yes right yeah which is an interesting topic to get into for sure so links to twin peaks yeah well i mean you started with the top of the episode talking about how this was originally going to be it was audrey yeah. horn going yeah. to california yeah. I, I can't imagine which role she would have played but well, I think I, Betty. I, well, you know, it's the story probably wouldn't have been anything like this. But, you know, yeah. if, if she would have been the ingenue who yeah. was going to go to Hollywood and become famous. But yeah. um, I think, the, you know, not just looking at the number of actors who come back from Mulholland Drive into to Twin yeah. Peaks. So you have um, Robert Forster, Robert Forster, Brent Briscoe, who mm-hmm. played um, one who played Detective Fusco. No. Um, oh, yeah. In, he was uh, the Mackley. Yeah, Mackley, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Obviously, Naomi Watts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Patrick Fischler. Yeah. Um, so these are Rebecca Del Rio. Um, these are all people who come back in and play similar roles in Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. I mean, literally, Rebecca Del Rio plays another torch singer in yeah. Twin Peaks, too. Is yeah. it the same character? Who knows, yeah. right? But I find it interesting that even the locations come back to play because the theater scene that Club Silencio is filmed at is where the fireman, um, yeah. where his home is, the the black and white 
room that More he and, and Senorita Dido yeah. are in. Yeah. It's literally the same theater. Yeah. So um, that does make you wonder, really, yeah. that especially with that Club Silencio scene, which we have not talked about nearly enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about the winky scene yeah. because um, we, we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but there's another moment of surreality that uh, happens early on when Aunt Ruth comes home and Rita is hiding under the table and it's very obvious that Ruth would have, would seen, have seen Rita her, yeah, yeah. but the fact that she doesn't kind of heightens that that sense of this is not real because yeah. in reality she would have seen that um, at that moment when Rita goes to sleep we move to this winky scene which is shot very differently and it has no real connection to any other part of the film and mm. Well, well, we'll talk, but yes, but continue, it's, yes, it's not referenced by Diane or Betty. The only thing that it's shared that is shared there is the location and the what happens in the in back of this place, yeah. as Dan Patrick Fisher's character says. But um, it's shot with this handheld camera that kind of moves in a, yeah, a dreamlike way, and, yeah. um, which is totally different from almost every yeah, other shot the in other the shots, film. Yeah. Um, and it deals with a dream as well. But I mm-hmm. think what this scene is, is is it's Rita's dream mm-hmm. or it's some kind of second level of the dream. If you have characters in, it's like Inception, when people fall asleep in a dream, do they yeah. dream, right? Yeah. So is this Rita's dream? Is this something somehow connected? And I've, I've talked to who has been emailing us back and forth about this. Um, and he has some fascinating ideas about how these are elements of the Black Lodge coming into play and and lodge entities being activated and um, mm-hmm. kind of deployed in order to push various characters either to ascension. White lodge characters, white lodge entities would mm-hmm. push you towards ascension, and black lodge characters would push you towards staying in that that space or mm-hmm. or disrupting your ascension. Is that what what is happening here? I mean, you literally see Dan descend four or five steps to go down to the parking lot to meet the man who lives by the dumpster, which I guess is linked to Diane Selwyn's character who, um, after she realizes that Camilla is dead, um, she's haunted by the two uh, older people who, the elderly couple that met her at the airport, that helped her off the airport at the beginning of her film. Betty. Helped Betty, yes. They come and torment her before she kills herself. And they're released from the blue box by the feet of this demonic um, garbage man, (laughs) right? Which is one of the scariest characters Lynch has ever put on screen. Um, So... Except for the baby from Razorhead, but go on. (laughs) I left that pause just for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my point is, is that the winky scene, if that is some other level of a dream, and we're descending even, you know, a, a descent into a dream from within a dream, and you literally meet this this evil entity that does really seem like it could be some kind of Black Lodge entity, right? And yeah. certainly those, that elderly couple yeah. are, are some something. kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, even from the minute you first meet them after they're Betty's dream, surreal. they're... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So are they also Lodge entities? I think that that, and then tying it back to Club Silencio, which has all of the hallmarks of being a lodge. You've got strobe lights, you've got red curtains, um, you've got literally the the same location that one of the lodges, anyway, potentially have been filmed at 
coming well, back to Twin Peaks. Seventeen Return. years later, but yes. Yeah. Um, you have Rebecca Del Rio playing that torch singer in a place that looks, you know, the roadhouse has been debated whether or not that is real yeah, or yeah. some kind of lodge adjacent space anyway. Yeah. Um, it's been said that you see two actresses who look very, very similar to Cheryl Lee and Phoebe Augustine, who yeah. play obviously Laura Palmer and uh, Renette P- Pulaski. They're sitting in the audience of yeah. Club Silencio. Yeah. So are they, are they yeah. deliberately placed there because they, are part of this lodge dream world. Yeah. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I talked a lot. No, no, no. And I, I agree. I think it's, it's a really interesting take on, on combining Lynch's universe. And the fact that mm-hmm. this started off as right. existing in the same Twin Peaks yeah. universe. I don't think by the time the pilot was being filmed, it, it did anymore, to be honest. Like, I think if you just watch the, the TV pilot, which which by the way ends right after um, Diane Rita's basically like started cutting her hair and Diane puts her in the blonde wig. So right yeah. before they they sleep together and they go to Club Silencio, right? Uh, that's where the TV pilot ends. So yeah. everything after that was filmed for the movie explicitly. Yeah. So Club Silencio and all that. Um, and I think the so I don't think the TV pilot had that tone to it. Right. But I think when he did come back to it as a film, he did those things on purpose. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, he did very much create a uh a twin peaks uh connected film mm-hmm. um and yeah those i mean especially yeah the the laura and the first time i remember even watching it the first time like is that uh renette Pulaski? laura didn't look very much like uh cheryl yeah, lee's very, very distinctive quick if you look it's it's quick but but the haircut and everything on yeah. the, the woman who looks like renette Pulaski was very similar and i was like wait it was but I was still trying to figure stuff out. So yeah. I came back to it. But the second or third time, I remember asking you, like, who is that? Are those, that supposed to be them? Um, and I think that's just a it's an extra layer of um, potential interpretations for, mm-hmm. the, for the show. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I really appreciate that. I'm sure we've left a lot of things out of our conversation. There's a lot that can be discussed with yes. relation to Mulholland Drive and a lot that has already been discussed. Yes. Um, I would encourage you to check out every if you're if you like Mulholland Drive and you're still wondering and you you have questions. I mean, there are lots of places, essays and websites and 25 years later has a ton of stuff. Um, And then, yeah, I would encourage you. We both would encourage you to pick up Douglas's edited um, essay collection, which Which is called the San Francisco of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, Place, Pilgrimage, and Commemoration. I think we'll throw the link up on our SoundCloud yep. um, to, the, to Amazon where you can purchase it. Um, just to, to look at the films that inspired Lynch to do this, especially Hitchcock. I feel like this is this is something that pays or has a heavy debt to, to Hitchcock and the yep. thrillers of, of the 1950s. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard too, though absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe that's where we should go next with our podcast. Look back at the all the works that influenced all the works that influenced David Lynch and Mark Frost. That could be good. Aiden wants to do Shakespeare. You want to do Shakespeare? I want to do Shakespeare. We'll probably do Shakespeare. Maybe after that, we'll (laughs) We'll come back. We'll see. But either way, uh, that that was Mulholland Drive in in an hour long or longer nutshell. Yeah. Um, And yeah, sorry, sorry if we missed anything obvious or any clear topics. I mean, there's just there's so much to talk about. There is so much. The film is really great. If you for some reason haven't watched the film uh, before listening listening to to us, us? yeah, go back and watch it right now because it's amazing, and you'll I'm sure you'll really enjoy it if you've listened to us 
talk about <laughs> it for an hour. For that yeah. Long. yeah. But um, yeah. So, well, Lindsay, what's next? I don't know what you is don't next. remember what's next because you don't. never handle that stuff. You have the list. You yes, have the, the handy true. Google spreadsheet. Next up, we have the greatest game ever played. About uh, basketball, right? Hockey. Wow, Lindsay, you really well, don't do your homework. Well, hockey is the best game you can play. And name the best you can name. You can name. name is the good old hockey game. Yeah, we're not going to insert that. Second period. No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Stomp and Tom Connors, everybody. Oh, geez. <laughs> Anyways, the greatest game ever played is about the 1913 U.S. Open. Uh, and it is a screenplay that Mark Frost wrote. Uh, uh, he also wrote the original book that it was based on. Yeah. Um, and it, it features uh, Shia LaBeouf, actually, yeah. as the... the uh, lead character yep. uh, about a, a 20 year old who basically works his way into the US Open golf obviously being at that time a very aristocratic sport he's mm-hmm. a working class guy it should be interesting I mean I think uh, Mark Frost has a huge interest in obviously Americana mm-hmm. uh, the US Open being a big one but sports uh, is something we haven't talked about but no. Mark Frost is a, a baseball fan I believe and uh, he's he's included some elements of of sport throughout uh, the secret history of twin peaks yeah. nothing nothing major well, football but american yeah, pastimes yeah exactly when you, when you talk about about american pastimes which is funny because golf is a scottish game but yeah yeah i mean it is something like the u.s open is a pretty big deal when it comes to and the pga and all that stuff yeah. so i mean that is really a, an interesting thing i had no idea that mark frost was involved with that until we we started researching the podcast so i am i'm really thrilled to to check that out if you are interested uh 25 years later has just started frost fridays yeah. which is i'm really excited about that just because yeah. i mean we love mark frost love here on bickering peaks um he's half of the duo that created twin peaks and he does not get enough credit for yeah. the work that he's done and we have done our part hopefully to shine a light on some of mark frost's lesser known works yeah. 25 years later is picking up the mantle that we've thrown down and they are running with it. I'm so thrilled to see some of the stuff that the writers there have been, have been turning out. Um, we had Brian last week, I believe it was last week did the list of seven, which is a, uh, Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mystery, uh, real life fanfic almost. I, I love it. It's great. Um, one that we have not covered on the podcast when we get to Mark Frost's novels, we'll be talking about some of his other works, um, his novelizations. Um, and I know Aiden, you're going to be writing about Hill street blues. Yep. Um, there, there's just a whole bunch of stuff coming up yeah. on 25 years later so definitely check them out if you are interested in more Mark Frost goodness as we are <laughs> as everybody should be yep um, but anyway yeah so the greatest game ever played will be coming up uh, next time on Bickering Peaks and after that we've got some more Lynch fun don't we yeah Inland Empire <laughs> well that'll be coming it's it's coming but later, oh you want right? to talk That's about the fun next, ones right? yeah no it's next yeah sorry it, it can't do, be next it's next it's not next it's next no Lindsay loves Inland Empire and I love so it the way that Aiden I. loves the Eraserhead baby let's put it that way yeah that's about right actually <laughs> so join us next week or in two weeks time sorry for the greatest game ever played and then Inland Empire following that and until then we'll uh, see you guys next time If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook 
at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.